How are we doing? Ready? Settle in. We're going to take a look at the life of David again. Now is it louder? Pretty loud? How you doing, Ray? Doing all right. Glad you're here. Nice shoes. Thank you. If you get to use them. All right, so you guys, we're looking at the life of David. And if you just are joining us, we've been working our way through 1 Samuel, starting around, we started around chapter 16, I think, maybe 15, 16, and we are on chapter 19 now. So if you have a Bible and you want to open it up to 1 Samuel 19, you can go there. We are, what we're, we're not really doing a series on Samuel, we're doing a series on David, but Samuel, 1 and 2 Samuel are the primary source data for kind of the narrative of David's life. But I mentioned to you guys several weeks ago, wait, so I mentioned to you several weeks ago that um, we, get more, we have more material about David than any other character in the entire Bible, Jesus being accepted, of course. He kind of he wins a lot of the games. Um, but it's not just the narrative. We also have so much information about David because he wrote half of the songs. And so it's like the most, in, in terms of like the inner life of a person, we get, we get more information about David than anybody. Probably even more than we have. We don't have 75 poems that Jesus wrote, right? And so we have all this information, not just about David, but a lot of information from David. And so what I put on your sheet here, uh, you, you should have found these. And if you didn't, if there's not enough of your table, I have more. We can get you more. Um, this is just a little bit of a cross-reference for you. There's about a dozen psalms. Well, okay, so David wrote about 75 psalms. But about a dozen of them, we know exactly what they were about. And we can correspond them directly to the event in his life, right? And the reason we can do that is that what sometimes will be called verse zero in the Psalms, or sometimes it's called the superscript. That's actually Bible. Generally speaking, throughout your Bible, if, whenever there's a heading for something, that's made up. That's man-made. It's not part of the original text. Somebody later after the fact went through and they wrote down, okay, this is where Paul's going to talk about, you know, baptism. Or this is where Peter's going to talk about the second coming. They're all, they're later editions. They're not Bible. But verse zero in the Psalms, that superscript, the first little line in, in, a, in a, the one that we're going to look at today in a minute, not yet, but we'll get down there in Psalm 59. It says, uh, oh, I didn't even have it up. Good work, genius. Psalm 59. It says, for the director of music to the tune of Do Not Destroy of David, a miktam, when Saul had sent men to watch David's house in order to kill him. That's Bible. That's official. That's like trustworthy record. And so based on those superscripts, those verse zeros, we can go back and say, hey, where did this one fit into the narrative? And so I, w I went through and I did that for you. So these are them. So as you're reading through David's life, Whenever we come across a passage that has its own direct psalm, it's right here. So you might want to fold this up, put it in your Bible, keep it as a bookmark as you're reading through 1 Samuel. And whenever you come across one that's like, oh, hey, look, this one has a psalm attached to it. In chapter 21 and 22 and 23 and 24, and then in 2 Samuel, a whole bunch of places, here's your psalm. And that will give you kind of the inside track on what David was thinking about while these things were happening, okay? And when we do that, it's kind of the stereoscopic vision. You're going to come with, with your left, you know, your right eye, you're seeing this. With your left eye, you see that, and that kind of something pops. You, we're going to see that. I hope today, at the end of our lesson here, we're going to start in Samuel. And at the end of it, we're going to go to Psalm 59. And I think what I hope will happen is you'll be like, well, that's, I think you'll be surprised by what Psalm 59 says, which is to say what David was actually thinking behind the scenes of what we see him doing in 1 Samuel, okay, because there's actually, they're not exactly the same, and it's kind of an interesting, interesting 
juxtaposition of those two things, okay? So just hang on to that. You'll see that as we go through. And what we're going to generally do, though, is walk through First uh, Samuel chapter 19 and uh, just try to make sense of what is going on, like just as we've been doing. As we always do it, we're going to be trying to read through. We're learning how to read narrative. We're learning how to read um, Christocentrically. We're trying to understand David's life. And so we're going to watch for echoes to other parts in David's story. What, what do things correspond to? Maybe we're going to listen for echoes in other parts of God's total redemptive story. We're just trying to learn, how, what did the author mean when he wrote this? Why did he include this story, this detail, what's going on? And hopefully as we get through this week after week, this is going to get old, hand, old, old news for you. You'd be like, I know how to do this. This is easy. And you can start teaching the class. I'll take a couple days off and you guys can get up here and just do it for me, okay? So... Let's start with, let's just get the first chunk out of the way, the first five verses to kind of set the stage, okay? So this is 1 Samuel 19, and I'll start with verse 1. You just listen in for echoes, listen to see what makes sense. So, it says this, Saul told his, told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. <laughs> That's interesting. What do you guys know about Jonathan's relationship with David? He loves him. He loves him. And he says, go kill your best friend. Okay, so that's, that's what happens. But Jonathan was very fond of David and warned him, my father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. And I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. And I'll speak to him about you and will tell you what I find out. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He's not wronged you, and what he's done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine, and the Lord won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? Okay, let's start there. So what's the answer to the question, by the way? Why would Saul kill him? Like, Dad, what do you, what's going on? So jealousy, Gary, for sure. And what, what, what was the provocation of jealousy in the last chapter? People were singing, Saul's killed a thousand, but David's killed ten thousand. That's right, right. The king is, I mean, it's just, it's really pretty simple. Like, he, king, Saul likes being the primary guy. And David, though everything he does is to the benefit of Saul, he's eclipsing Saul in the fight for glory. And he does not like that at all. Very much so. Jealousy is a massive motivator. John? There is also... Uh, That is an excellent observation. So Saul has been told that, you know what, you blew it. And so we're going to take away the kingdom from you. And so he's a little bit on alert. He's ready for some usurper. Who's going to come in and who's going to take it away? And in fact, even uh, invoking that, this idea of the, the kingdom will be taken away from you, some of that imagery is going to show up again in this chapter. So I'm glad that you're kind of loading that into our minds. So there's jealousy in general for glory. There's an actual threat to the throne. Very good. Anything else you guys would add? Why, why he's like this? I think those are the primary things going on here. But would you add anything? No, no, no. We're content. Okay. So Saul has this uh, growing effort to eliminate David. What have we already seen him do in an effort to get rid of David? 
threw a spear at him twice, right? Anything else? Sends him to the front lines, right? Which was we said was is reminiscent of what? Or not reminiscent, but is anticipatory of what? David. What David does to Uriah, right? So we see that thing, and it's like such a crummy thing that David gets sent to the front lines so he'll get killed, and then later on, many years later, he's gonna send somebody to the front lines, which is just such a crummy little we're just keeping that in our mind as we're building this story. Anything else he does? Stakes out his house. What's that? Stakes out his Yes, and that's what's going to happen in this chapter, right? There's going to be the, the, the stakeout, right? And that's going to really kind of get on Dave, under David's skin as, we, as we'll see as it unpacks, okay? So Saul has this growing effort. You're going to see increasing intensity, and it's not going anywhere. It's not, it didn't end in chapter 18. It's not going to end in chapter 9. It's going to be the ongoing reality of David's life. For, do you remember how long we said this is? How long is, how long is the time from? 15 years. It's 15 years, Terry, yeah. From the time that David has said, hey, you're going to be king until he actually is king is 15 years. And pretty much that entire time, he is a hunted man. He's being chased around the kingdom by Saul. And we're just kind of in the front end of it. And it's just super, can you imagine how exhausting that would be for 15 years? What what year was it 15 years ago? It's like 2006. Since 2006, somebody's been chasing you, hunting you, trying to get you, right? It's just, it's got to grow pretty wearisome, okay? So... Saul has this growing effort. He used to, how did he used to feel about David? Do you remember? He loved him. him. Why did he love him? There was was a time where there was great fun. Let's go back to chapter 16. The the relationship began well. Yes. Yeah, whenever Saul would be all freaked out, David would come in and play music for him and calm him down. He liked him for that. What was David's grand debut on the stage? Killing God. He liked that too, right? David was a good guy once. But now it's all kind of just corrupting for Saul. He doesn't like him. And so he has a bigger, he, he keeps trying different things. He keeps bigger, bigger and bigger, bigger things. And as happens, well, he, have you noticed this in your own life? Have you noticed that the angrier you get and the more sinful you get, the more stupid you get? Have you, has this happened to you? Or is it only Ray that this happens to? Like, so what do you think of your plan to ask David, what do you think of his plan to ask David to kill, I mean, ask Jonathan to kill David? Was there ever a moment that was a reasonable suggestion? Like, could, is, is there any reason he would think that Jonathan's going to be like, sure, Dad, you got it. Yeah. Right? It gives, so I, I think it's included there to give us a little bit of insight that Saul's losing it. Right? And this is the nature of sin. You just get stupider and stupider and stupider. It seemed, he's like, I got an idea. Jonathan's really close to David. He'll have opportunity. I mean, yes, but there's no way that was ever going to happen. And yet he thought it would. All right? So you see in Saul, he's, he's losing it. He's going he's to fall apart. And it's going to get worse for him, too. We're gonna, as we watch Saul, Saul's life is going to unravel over these m- many chapters to come. Kelly Sue? It sounds absurd that he would ask Jonathan to kill David, but <laughs> keep in mind that at this time, That's right. Of course, Jonathan is next in line. So of course, Jonathan is invested in the tournament and wants to protect the royal. That's that's absolutely true. So Jonathan is David's best friend, and therefore, there's no way he's going to kill David. But hang on a second, because if Jonathan were a normal guy, he would want to be king when his father was gone. 
And he would recognize, it's not Saul's, Saul's throne is not the only thing that's being threatened here. It's Jonathan's throne. And so it would make, from a particular lens, from the way that Saul is viewing things, simply through power and not through love, his command probably seemed very reasonable to him, right? But again, that's through a very, through the lens of power, it makes sense. And, we're, and the author wants us to take a, a bigger view of the story. The power is not the only thing in the world. May not even be the most important thing in the world, which to Saul would sound pretty stupid, right? And did you want to say something? I want to ask, how much can you say that that um, Saul wanted to kill David just because that was the course that God had set? He didn't know anything of it. He wanted David to be king, and so it was just going to go that. Can you say that? Well, okay, just going to go that that David would be king, or that Saul would be oppositional to it. Yes, it is. It is a fait accompli. David will be king. And we're going to, as we watch this thing play out, there are some, there's going to be some moments where David, by all reasonable expectations, would die. But he doesn't. Right? God is going to save his life in these, like, really dramatic last-second ways. And so, to, and so to a certain extent, David is, he's untouchable. He's invincible. Because God's purposes will be carried out. Um, but, and, and as we watch it in real time, man, it sure doesn't look invincible. It looks like he's about to go down. And then... Holy moly, he's going to slip the news again and again. But so, for sure. Yes, Catherine. This is kind of like Cain and Abel, too, the jealousy. Some, I think there was some kind of jealousy going on there. Oh, for sure. You know, and, and, also, and also, like uh, with uh, Jacob deceiving, then the same thing. He got deceived the same way. And so this, like, David was sent to the front, well, then he sent. That's excellent. And so, so good, Catherine. So you are, you're, it's exactly what I want you to do, is to begin to notice, oh, this reminds me of this part, of, whether it's within David's story or within, like, the total canon of Scripture, where do you see these? And so the Cain and Abel jealousy, that's another great tag. We're going to see, there's all kinds of places where there's echo, there's just echoes everywhere, okay? Uh, give, give me one more, and then I'll go to Jennifer in one second. Um, where, else has, where else has Saul issued a stupid command? Where has Jonathan been under Saul's foolish leadership? We haven't looked at this, but it came in the part of Samuel that we skipped. Honey. The honey thing. Exactly. What's the, what's the honey? Do you remember the honey story? It is, they're going into battle, and um, Jonathan and his armor bearer are separating. They go up, and they attack, and they get weak, and Jonathan takes some honey and eats it. But Saul had put all the men under a ban that they were not to eat or drink, and so anyone who did would be. Exactly right. It's exactly. Right. So I mean, I don't know what genius. You've heard the you know the argument that an, that an army advances on its stomach. You know this. And they don't mean that they crawl. What that means is that the only way you can win a war is if you're feeding your troops. And so Saul starves his troops going into battle. Anybody that eats, you're going to kill you. And then Jonathan doesn't hear. He eats the honey, and, jo- and so he's supposed to die. And so Jonathan is just used to his dad being stupid, right? I mean, that's the thing. And does that, does that phrase trigger any of you? Are, you? are you afraid that your children are used to you being stupid? Like, is that like, ah, oh, I'm afraid that they are, right? Of course they are, right? But so Jonathan is used to his dad being an idiot, but this is just a new, this is a, a kind of a new low for him, right? All right, Jennifer. Something you said that, um, about <laughs> uh, David being invincible. Yeah. God 
So we see David is profoundly humble, profoundly trusting. That's one of the things, we'll see it here in the Micah, I mean the Michael part about to happen in the story, is that he he just trusts the Lord, he waits on the Lord, um, and doesn't feel like he's got to like bow up or flex on it, which is weird. Although, there's more going on beneath the surface when we get to Psalm 59. Kelly? I think it's, another reason Saul is incited against David is because Paul's got the text in Samuel, when it talks about David, he's often referenced. right absolutely yeah so the 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 touch that is on david the way the spirit of god is alive on david that's what scares saul to death because he he saul has this growing sense of the invincibility or even the inevitability of david right and by the way just because kelly's mentions I'll, I'll put this in again david is right he's the he's the he's the uh prototype of the messiah he's the archetype of the messiah in fact at this point in the story Maybe he is the Messiah, right? This is what's, what's happening. What does the word Messiah mean? Because we, tr- we translate, it's a Hebrew word that basically is, it sounds like Messiah. We just transliterate it. But it actually means something before it comes to have the title of, you know, the anointed, anointed one. What does that mean, anointed one? This person, this person is especially chosen by God. That's right. Right, and so when the holy when when they would anoint them, they're going to put oil on them. Right, we could do it with a cross. They would just put a, put oil on them. The anointing David is the anointed one, right? He very much is. He's not. Jesus is coming. Jesus is going to be the really anointed one. Okay, but before we get there, David is he is Messiah in the sense that he is the one who has been anointed. Right now, there's a bigger capital M Messiah is still coming, but. The Spirit of God living on David's life is what sets him apart. Very much in the same way that, this, that when the Son finally comes, he comes fully surrendered to the Spirit. So we just want to see these things. He is, man, there's something special about him. And what is special about him is the Holy Spirit is just, has anointed him. Okay, Lily. Also, a, a thought on anointing is also the anointing is generally for a purpose, like a specific purpose. Like when Jesus says yes. uh, of Isaiah 61, you know, he is anointed. That's right. And in David's case, anointed to what end? Uh, to be king, to rule. Absolutely. Ellen, did you want to add something? Um, I would put the definitional for you. It says, the promised deliverer of the Jewish nation prophesied in the Hebrew Bible. That's the meaning. And then there's a second meaning. meaning um, a leader or savior of a particular group or cause. Okay, and that's good. And those are like this. Those are those are ultimately the fuller meanings of Messiah. But the word we're borrowing the word Messiah from the concept of the Anointed One, just like the word Church, 
church means something, right? Church means this group of Christians. But we just stole the word. Like the Greek word behind church is what? Ecclesia. Ecclesia, which all it means is? Gathering. We could have a gathering of anything. We've just kind of stolen the word and made it into like a proper name, basically, right? And so that's all the Messiah is, right? So David is the anointed one, but he points to the, one, the anointed one that is coming. All right, let's keep going. 1 Samuel 19, 6. It says, Saul, listen to Jonathan. Check this out. And take this oath. Took this oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. So Jonathan called David and told him the whole conversation. And he brought him to Saul. And David was with Saul as before. Do you think Saul meant it? But it's true. Well, it is true. You're right, DFB. I mean, it's definitely true. I think he meant it for about 20 minutes, right? Have you had this happen in your life? Have you ever meant it for a day? Whatever it is, I'm never going to do that again. I am not going to eat any more fudge. And you mean it. I think he means it. But he just can't. He just can't stay there, right? He's not going not gonna to persist, all right? And so David goes, and he hangs out with Saul, and he comes back in, which is kind of a pretty courageous move on David's part, right? That he's going to come in. This guy's chucking spears at him. He's going to come in. He's going to do it. And so, once again, verse 9, but an evil spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. And while David was playing the harp, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear, but David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. And that night David made good his escape. <laughs> okay, how many times did Saul throw his spear at David last chapter? Twice. Twice. How many times this chapter? Once. Why do you think that is? David wised up. David wised up. <laughs> I think that's it, right? For some reason he stuck around long enough for two tosses. And the first, this time he's like, all right, we're done here, Right? And he's gone. And I, I really think it's exactly what you say, Ray. I mean, he's just like, we're, we're done here. Now, the fact that Saul, think about this. Saul's the most powerful man in Israel. He's inside his own fortress, and he's got a spear. Doesn't that seem strange? Like, there's got to be a royal guard, somebody that's got to do this. But he's, he's ready to go. And David sees it, and David's gone. And so he's out. And so the spear thing is not going to work anymore because Saul's no longer going to have access to him. So he's got to devise another strategy. Do you remember what his next strategy is going to be? Stake out his house. Stake out the house, right? And he's going to involve somebody else. His one kid, Jonathan, isn't going to be real helpful to him. But there's more. So take a look. Verse 11. So Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and to kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, warned him, If you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So Michael let David down through a window, and he fled and escaped. And then Michael took an idol and laid it on the bed, covering it with a garment and putting some goat's hair at the head. Okay, all kinds of things going on here. We've, he's already tried to get Michael to be his ally. Remember, like, hey, if I can get it, he'll marry her. And maybe he'll die fighting for her with the whole hundred foreskins thing. Oh, darn it. I was going to wear my T-shirt, and I keep forgetting to do that. So I'll have to go, I'll have to go get that for you. It's, it's a great shirt. Um, uh, and maybe, maybe she'll, he'll get tangled up because she's really not very godly. See, also, she's got an idol to hide in the bed, right? But once again, just like Jonathan won't be his ally, Michael won't be his ally either. And she's going she's gonna to help David to escape, okay? Now, just with that much said and this, this much that we've read, there's all, there might be lots of bells going off. Where does this tie into your mind to the greater biblical storyline? 
there's all kinds of all kinds of echoes here. What do you got here, Fetz? Third spies drop through uh, starts with an R. Rahab. Yes. Lower the spies through the, the roof of the church. Absolutely, Micah. I mean, Michael is functioning in the same role that Rahab did, of letting somebody out the window to keep them safe. And Rahab, though a woman of kind of questionable character, she takes on this heroic role, right, when the, when the spies are coming through the land, and Michael is echoing that. So we're meant, I think we're meant to see Michael in this like, oh, she's a, she's a good one. She's, she's helpful to him in that sense. So very good. Where else? There's a, there's a couple of kind of tie-ins here that might, might pop for you. Say it again. Oh yes, very good. Yeah, when that when when Paul is the different Saul, the good guy Saul becomes Paul. He's let down and in an escape. We see that. That's going to get picked. That's of course not in Samuel's mind here, but that this might be in Luke's mind when he's writing that story of this escape. We're seeing all these various escapes. Excellent. What else? There's a couple others I heard. She had. It doesn't really. Oh, yes. Said to kill the one who cast the idols. But Absolutely. So it's not quite the same thing. But no, but, but I think it does. Okay, so let's unpack that story. So do you guys remember, remember this? So think about women with idols saving their husbands. Okay, that's our theme. Okay, right? Who knew that was even a biblical theme? But it's exactly what happens, right? So Jacob is fleeing from, I remember who Jacob is fleeing from? Laban is his dirtbag. Jacob's a dirtbag too. But Jacob meets Laban and Laban is like, just as conniving and scandalous as Jacob is. And as they're leaving, his, his daughter, his own daughter, steals one of these household idols. And she's going she's gonna to like use this and hide this thing as a way to rescue Jacob. So I think that, that story is wrap, wrapped up into that. was going to kill whoever had his idol. That's right. Absolutely. That's exactly true. Now, does anybody happen to have a footnote on what this idol is called? Do you have this in your, in, you have study notes on this? called a teraphim, which you might, it might echo like seraphim, teraphim. So let me just read you to this. This is from a commentary on this. It says, the reference here to a teraphim, apparently a large anthropomorphic idol, is the second one in 1 Samuel. Okay, which who knew? I didn't notice that until I read this. Ominously, the prophet Samuel previously had suggested that Saul's rebellious acts were equitable to, this is chapter 15, the evil of teraphim. Through the present compelling scene and without the intrusion of a didactic commentary, the writer is suggesting that Michael was as much a spiritual rebel as her father. And this observation foreshadows the outcome for Michael's life that is the feminine counterpart to Saul's. Michael's father lost his opportunity to establish a dynasty and Michael lost her opportunity to establish a family. That's not going to happen until 2 Samuel 6, okay? And I say that to say there's all these confused, it's complicated, right? In the one hand, Michael is an echo of Rahab because she's rescuing these guys, this guy through the window. But on the other hand, she's doing so through the use of an idol, which is going to actually lead to her downfall because she's faithless to the Lord, okay? When you're reading a story, we have a strong tendency to be like, who are the good guys? Who are the bad guys? We want black hats and white hats. We want it to be really clear. Okay? What do you think the author is suggesting here when we're watching all these characters proceed in all these ways about who the good guys are, who the bad guys are? What, what, what is supposed to pop for you in this? That we're all messed up. Okay. We're, this is right. 
right? So Michael is rescuing, but oh man, but she's doing it so badly and in such a corrupted way. And yet, God is going to use even her twistiness to save the one that he is determined to save, right? That's exactly right. And yet, in the midst of all of that, for now, David is hands clean. David is an exceptional character until he's not, right? He is faithful. He's never going to pick up the spear. He's never going to throw it back. He's going to do everything right. Everybody around him is just kind of a mess. Everybody around him is this host of contradictions and promises. As surely as the Lord lives, I won't lay a hand on David till tomorrow, right? It's oh, and Michael is, I mean, it's just, just everything's a mess except there's this one sterling character who's walking through it all unfazed. And David stands in sharp relief. Make sense? All right. Let's keep going. Uh, so we got Jacob. We got all this. Oh, somebody else. Who else was saved? One, one more guy that is saved by the daughter of the king. Can you think of somebody else in the Old Testament prior to this moment who was saved by the daughter of the king? Moses, Moses right? King is, you know, king had to reinterpret king for Pharaoh. But how, do, how was Moses saved by the daughter of the Pharaoh? Yeah, you know, he put, mom puts him in a basket. He supposed to go off and I guess... What happens? Eat by a crocodile or something? I don't even know what the plan of that was. But, but the Pharaoh's daughter takes him in and rescues him. Lots of different things, I think, are being invoked in all of this. And by one means or another, God's sovereign purposes are going to prevail. And throughout all of it, all of it, David never raises a hand against Saul. At least not in the actual physical world, but wait for Psalm 59. Okay? All right, 1 Samuel 19, 14. When Saul sent his men to capture, capture David, Michael said, he's ill. Was he ill? No. No, okay. So, then Saul sent the men back to David and told them, bring him up to me in his bed so that I may kill him. Okay, this is such a kingy move. What is he, what is he doing? The claim is David's too sick to get out of bed. And so the king says, well, bring me the bed. Right? It is such a thing that, like, when you're sovereign, you're the king, and you do whatever you want, you're like, no problem. Bring me the bed. Right? And so they go in to get him. And verse 16, when the men entered, there was the idol in the bed, and at its head was some goat's hair. P.S. Does that remind you of anything? Goat's hair? Okay, do you, do you see how many little, little, like, little hat tips there are? That there's a sense of the goat hair is this like disguise thing. Just whatever. You're just, you're just learning to notice. Be curious. Verse 17, Saul says to Michael, Why did you deceive me like this and send my enemy away so that he escaped? And Michael told him, Well, he said to me, Let me go away. Why should I kill you? Did David say that? <laughs> Michael is a liar. Okay? David's not sick. He's not even in the bed. David didn't threaten to kill her. She's just... Her strategy to get through the situation is lie, 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 lie. All right? Just notice this. Michael is not, Michael, God is going to use her, but she's a deceptive person, and it's going to go badly for her down the road, okay? But, of course, Saul is the king, and so he says, just bring me the bed. And then in verse 18, it says this. When David had fled and made his escape, he went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And then he and Samuel went to Naoth and stayed there. Where, why do you think David went to Samuel? Probably several reasons. But if you were fleeing, why, why Samuel? Samuel anointed him as the new king. 
goes, Samuel knows the, his authenticity, the legitimacy. Samuel anointed him. He was the guy that said, you're the one that's going to be king. So he's likely to find some sympathy from him, right, some, or some agreement from him. Great. What else is going down with Samuel? Why, would Samuel? why don't you just go home? Why didn't he go to Jesse's house? Samuel was a prophet also. Okay, so Samuel is like the chief man of God in Israel, right? He's a big deal. There is, you got this king, but prior to having a king, the guy that ran the country was Samuel. So Samuel is a big deal. He's the one who's anointed him. What else? What else does, what else does David have in common with Samuel? They both love the Lord, for sure, like genuinely. Samuel is a good guy. He actually loves the Lord. He's faithful to him. He sees him. Sometimes he hears his voice wrong, you know, and he'll be like, hey, here's the one I'm supposed to anoint because, like, no, wrong. Do this instead. But he's a good guy, for sure. There's something else that's relevant to David's flight here. Yeah, Fetz? Saul hates Samuel, too. Saul hates Samuel, too. Yes. Why, how do we know this? Or what, what, where did this happen in the story? Happened before, probably. It did. That's right. It's precisely so, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Listen to 1 Samuel 16. Samuel was supposed to go anoint David, and he says this. This is 1 Samuel 16, 2. But Samuel said, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Saul there was a moment where Saul may have wanted to kill Samuel. So Samuel knows, so when David shows up and it's like, this guy's trying to kill me and I hate the way that feels. Samuel was like, yeah, I felt that way too, right? So he's, there's a sympathy there. You're gonna, you like to go to somebody that like understands why this is such a nightmare for you, right? And so Saul heads off to Samuel's. Yeah, John. When Samuel says that there was real power in the because you look, yeah. look at these following verses, uh, uh, Saul sends me to get David. Yes, okay. So let's watch that happen. This is, this is one of the strangest things. It's very, very hard to visualize this happening. So check it out. The word came, this is verse 19. Now, word came to Saul. David is here in Naoth, Ramah. He sent men to capture him. Oh, wait, we read all this. Okay. So, but when they saw a group of prophets prophesying with Samuel standing there as their leader, the Spirit of God came upon Saul's men, and they also prophesied. What? And Saul was told about it, so he sent some more men, and they prophesied too. So Saul sent men a third time, and they also prophesied. What on earth? Is, what does this mean? What is happening here? If you, if you were making a film, what would, what would happen? God's trying to save him. Uh, Okay, who is trying to save him? God is trying to save him. Okay, so God is going to save David. And so what does he do? What is this, like literally watch the movie here. These guys show up with like clubs and spears and stuff. And then what happens? Yeah, the Spirit of God comes on in some weird way. And, but literally, what does it mean that they are prophesying? They're speaking the truths of God. They're speaking by the Spirit. Yeah, but like almost like, you get a, don't you get a sense of it's like, apart from their wishes, they come in, they, they come up and they want to cut somebody's head off and then they drop their sword and like, they start singing or something. They start, prop, they start verbalizing these things and they are all like a bunch of thugs that get sent to attack and they all drop their clubs and start praising y Yahweh. 
they're like, oh, what the heck? So we send in another band of them, and they drop their clubs and start praying. Send in a third time, and then finally, you know, you know what Saul's going to do when he's so sick and tired of all these idiot thugs coming in and praising God instead of beating down his enemy? What's he going to do? He's going to, fine, I'll, you, you, know, you know the adage, right? If you want something done right, just do it yourself. And so what's going to happen? Verse 22. Finally, he left for Ramah and went to the great cistern of Sikhu. When he asked, where are Saul and David over Naoth? So Saul went there, but the Spirit of God came even upon him. And he walked along prophesying. And he stripped off his robes and also prophesied in Samuel's presence. And he lay that way all day and night. And this is why people say, is Saul also among the prophets? Do you know how aggravating that had to be? <laughs> like, holy moly, Lily. Um, also, it's, it's interesting that it happens in chapter 10 as well, he, that when it, he comes to see a group of prophets um, around verses 9, 10, 11, that then the Spirit of God rushed upon him and he prophesied among them. So there's something about this corporate, this gathering of people who have, uh, who operate prophetically, uh, for lack of a better term. Yep. It's interesting, too, that just being among those people whom the Spirit of God is powerfully upon influences other people. That's right. Yeah, and uh, this is exactly right. So they show up, and they're here to be aggressors, and they cannot beat them, so they join them. But I do not think they do so voluntarily, right? So it's like there's this battle, you guys, between the flesh and the spirit, and the spirit goes like 4-0. I mean, just every band comes in, and he's like, yeah, no problem. Okay, no problem. Okay, no problem. And then Saul finds, like, Saul strips off all of his clothes, like, and imbecile right i mean he's just completely de denigrated here and worship and lays there all night long having worshiped jesus now there's a there's a meaning to that too we'll get to that kelly struck him dead that's exactly right That's right. It's like this moment of like, enough, it's me. It's about me. Even against your will, I was thinking about me and through you. You glorified me, even though you knew you would look That's exactly right. So Saul, Saul, God could dispose of Saul any way that he wants, but he chooses to compel him to worship. We make a big deal. It's very, very it's a frequent thing in Christianity to say that, you know, God can evoke worship from stones, right? And who's our, who are our two favorite least likely worshipers? Rocks and a donkey, right? And I'm just going to add Saul to the party, right? Because it's, it's the same phenomena. When Jesus says God can raise up worshipers from these very rocks, when he makes Balaam's ass speak, and like Saul's the same thing, right? And God will get, God will win. I mean, you just, man, how, how many times do we put ourselves in a position that's oppositional to him? It's like, I mean, he will... He will tolerate it only so long, you know? Catherine? And then he, um, God just shows once again, <clears throat> kind of showing David, if you're, if I anoint someone, then I protect them. And here it's like a big, blatant example of you're not going to, you're not going to touch my holy, my anointed one, not holy. That's right. And the sovereignty of God, I mean, the that theme is so, of course, I'm doing Revelation right now, so, yeah, 
God's sovereignty. God's power over all things. And yet he, ex- he, he could kill Saul, but he chooses to draw him to worship, which is a pretty gracious, it's humiliating to Saul, but it's a pretty gracious touch. Okay, Kat and then Chris, and then one more thing, because I, I don't want to miss something before we leave. Kat. I have a question. Yes, ma'am. Um, do you think that what they were prophesying was really worship? Because I read the message, and I realize it's not a literal translation, but in the message it says that um, they were uh, in a babbling, he was in a babbling trance, and that he uh, laid there naked, rambling gibberish. So I'm just wondering where that might come from. Um, so I don't know. All that I have is that he, they prophesied. Um, and so I don't know what they say. We, we tend to think of prophecy in terms of prediction, but I think prophecy is broader than prediction. It's, it's not just foretelling, but it's also forthtelling. So they were saying things that were true about God, which is not a bad definition of worship. I don't think they were just like, you know, drooling and babbling. I think they were speaking things, but I don't, but it doesn't say what they were speaking. So Maybe, but there's no mention of that. I think that if they were speaking what would have seemed like a bizarre foreign language, that might have been made more explicit, but, but I don't know. Yeah, that's beyond kind of... Where the author of the message might have gone. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Kelly? Actually, to what Kat is saying, on 1810, first Samuel 1810, it says, The next day an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul, and he was playing the harp. My footnote there says, Evil spirit from God, denote on 1614, prophesied in the Hebrew for this word is sometimes used to indicate uncontrolled ecstatic behavior. Well, just understood in this sense. So, but this babbling, this, this is, okay, I don't want to spend the time on this because it's something I really want to say before we're done. But, so uncontrolled ecstatic behavior. So there may be, I don't know, there may be more, there may be more to that. But help me just set that aside for the moment because I want to get something done. Okay, Chris, real quick. And real quick, I was just, I want to, just want to ask about the focus on God's relationship with us. About how we're talking about his sovereignty and how he can just, yeah, make stones cry out and whatnot. Yeah. Choose that. He doesn't want that. I would argue that so, uh, Psalm 59 in particular yeah. frames that with David talking about kill them not because I because God clearly doesn't just want them all dead. He wants to know them. Yes, that's right. So he will get his worshipers, but he what he wants is gladful hearts, right? Not rocks to worship him, which is why like the people are, the, the better thing is that the people are crying out and doing so voluntarily. But he is... These guys are absolutely, their, their will is being subdued in this, no, no question. But what he wants is gl- gladful hearts that love him and see his beauty. No question, no question. Okay, I can't do it right now because I'm around out of time. So here's what I want you to do. Go to Psalm 59. We've seen the story. We've seen the way David is innocent of all things. He's just walking through the line. And in light of that, read through Psalm 59, all right? Because there's some interesting surprises here. When we kind of peer into his mind, because he's writing down his thoughts, here's what David is, this is all, as I said, this is while, while Saul's watching his house. Verse 1, deliver me from my enemies, O God. Be my fortress against those who are attacking me. Deliver me from evildoers and save me from those who are after my blood. See how they wait for me. Fierce men conspire against me for no offense or sin of mine, Lord. I've done no wrong, yet they are ready to attack me. Arise to help me. Look on my plight. You, Lord Almighty, you who are the God of Israel, rouse yourself. What's David feeling right now? He's afraid. 
right? He seems like he's above it all, right? He seems pretty unmoved. But the dude is terrified, and reasonably so, right? And so in his fear, in his dread, in his terror, look what he says. He says, rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Show no mercy to wicked traitors. They return at evening snarling like dogs and prowl about the city. See what they spew from their mouths. Their words from their lips are sharp swords. And they think, who can hear us? But you laugh at them, Lord. You scoff at all those nations. This, by the way, is very Psalm 2-ish. You might, if you know Psalm 2, there's a lot of echoes. You go back and reread that. Some echoes here. You laugh at them, Lord. You scoff at those nations. You are my strength. I watch for you. You, God, are my fortress, my God on whom I can rely. What's Michael's strategy? Lie. She's going to lie. She's going to lie. What is David's strategy? Praise. What is it, Brad? Cry out to the Lord. Cry out to the Lord. Right? Michael's like pulling levers. Who can I lie to? How can I arrange this? And David's, he's not lying to anybody. He's just going to cry out to the Lord. Okay, now watch this. God will go before me and will let me gloat over those who slander me. But do not kill them, Lord, our shield, or my people will forget. And your might uproot them and bring them down. For the sins of their mouths, for the word of their lips, let them be caught in their pride. For the curses and lies they utter, consume them in your wrath. Consume them till they are no more. Then it will be known to the ends of the earth that God rules over Jacob. Okay, what kind of psalm is this? Do you know the category of this? Imprecatory. imprecatory. What does imprecatory mean? It's basically kind of calling curses on. Yeah, right. And imprecatory psalms are hard for us because are we supposed to be like, God, crush them. Are we allowed to pray? Uh, Lord, consume them in your wrath. Consume them till they are no more. Like, does that feel weird? No. That feels weird, okay? But here's what you've got to do. You've got to take the imprecatory psalm of what, when he is alone with God, crying out. He is saying this. And then, does he turn around and say, and God, I will be your instrument of judgment? Does he do that? No. Instead, what does he do? He waits. He trusts. Sometimes, I think we struggle with the imprecatory psalms because we assume that if we're crying out for God to judge, that we will therefore become bloodthirsty ourselves, that we will turn ourselves into those judges. We will answer our own prayer. But that's precisely the opposite effect of the imprecatory psalms. It is specifically our belief that God will be just that frees us from the burden of being the executors of that judgment. The imprecatory psalms are an absolute necessity for all those that would live a peaceful life that Jesus has called us to live, right? Because we can say, you know what? I'm not gonna touch him. I'm not gonna lay a hand on him. I don't need to. The Lord will do what he's pleased to do. He is wiser than I. He is stronger than I. I'm gonna trust it to him. Right? So when you see this, you look at it's not a contradiction. The reason that David didn't throw the spear back is because he knew, God, is, I'll keep my hands clean. I'll let the Lord, Lord do it. Right? So we needn't be afraid of the imprecatory psalms. We can call out to God to be just. He's wiser than we are. He's more powerful than we are. And if we trust him, then I do not need to become a vigilante, enacting justice and vengeance because I'm so wise and so powerful. You see the, see the juxtaposition? 
Don't be afraid of the imprecatory psalms. They're what enable you to live a peaceful life. Okay, wait, go for it. Yep, Herrick. On the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, uh, you know, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father. Mm. Like, that's where it, I get the imprecatory psalms. Okay, so Herrick is saying, does Jesus live out the imprecatory psalms, or are we even called to a higher standard to pray for the good of our enemies? And the answer is, it's both. Both of these things are true. And so Jesus absolutely, I mean, he, he dies for his enemies, right? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he cries out for the forgiveness of those that were crucifying him, casting lots for his clothing. All of that is true. But it is also true that he says to the Pharisees, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you ever escape being condemned to hell? He also makes a cord out of whips or whip out a cord and clears out the temple. So you see in Jesus both the justice, people will, it's easy to take anybody and just like, you know, run them through a filter. And you could see in Jesus merely his merciful kindness. And we love his merciful kindness for we're sinners and we've come under that. But you also see in him that his wrath is poured out against sin, right? So that's why Paul says, look, look at this. So this is, you know, our Savior that we long for his return. We're talking about Advent. Just look at this. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, Jesus defies simple description. If you go to 2 Thess chapter 1, it's going to say this. It says, verse 5, all this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. On the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people, to be marveled at among all those who have believed. Holy cow. That's as imprecatory as it gets. And this is from the guy who travels the entire Roman Empire, speaking of the love and the mercy of the salvation that are, that are in Christ. He longs to see people come to Christ. And every, I mean, his whole life is about that. And yet, he knows that the God who is merciful and provides a refuge for sinners will finally be just. That those that will not come under his saving protection will come under his judgment. And we've got to live in both of those realities, you got to live with both. It's part of part of the real world in which we inhabit, and we've got to stop. Sorry, we're out of time. So now, next week, I'm going to be in um, North Carolina with Kelly's family, but Landon is going to be teaching class here, and Landon is fantastic. I think you're going to love him. He's terrific. So he'll be up here. So join us, join him. I'll be in North Carolina. Then we'll be back the following week for chapter 20. So keep reading First Samuel. Thank you. Yeah.